Well, that is a special day. Praise the Lord. I'm very thankful for the Weilers being here. Please, uh, you know, get updates and, and visit their booth afterwards or their table, please. And uh, just fun. Just always fun to have them. I think of that story that uh, Gerald shared about the question about his dad's hair. I sure, I surely hope that Gerald's boys never bring that question to him. Ever. <laughs> We can pray for that. Oh, such a good time. Such a good day. Um, please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. Oh, children. Let's dismiss the children to children's church first. But you can keep turning. Children's church ages three to about eight. I'll follow to the corner there as we turn to thank you, Noah. Um. Oh, Luke 12, we'll pick up where we left off in, in, in verse 54, and uh, this is titled, Men of Mindfulness, Men of Mind, Mindfulness. I was going to title this just, Use Your Noggin, really, Use Your Noggin. It, it is about common sense. Um, today's passage, that, that is what it's about, it's common sense. Problem is, void of God's Spirit. And in the world that we live in today, spiritual common sense just isn't that common or popular these days. Uh, I want to magnify grace before we start this message. Uh, it's a hard, it's a hard passage. And I want to assure you if you're visiting today and, and uh, if you're first time here and uh, uh, you've struggled throughout your life, that there is nothing short of rejecting Christ as Savior, there is nothing in your past that Christ is unwilling to forgive. His grace and mercy is abundant, and it is available uh, to everyone here today. So I want to encourage you in that. At the same time, no sin that we may have committed, any of us, is too small that we don't deserve the judgment of God. So this is a serious message today. You can follow along as I read from Luke chapter 12. It's also very timely. Beginning in verse 54. And he, Jesus, was also saying to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say a shower is coming, and so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say, It will be a hot day, and it turns out that way. You hypocrites, you know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not analyze this present time? And why do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right? For while you are going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate, on your way there, make an effort to settle with him, so that he may not drag you before the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I say to you, you will not get out of there until you have paid the very last cent. You know, during the time of Jesus, uh, men could really discern all kinds of things. They had learned all types of things. It's a mistake to assert that that generation wasn't as intelligent as we are today. Uh, that impression, that, that's a false impression placed upon us by a fake theory called evolution. You know, it's regrettable that public schools still teach that over millions of years... Animals turned to apes, and they, of course, evolved into cavemen, and uh, we even today remain in that continuous 
process, they say, of evolving. That is complete error, folks, complete error. And there exists no scientific evidence to confirm that. Uh, in fact, the fossil record does not reveal a slow, mutating, evolving, or morphing from one life form to another. But instead, it provides evidence of a spontaneous creation of distinct species, exactly as Genesis chapter 1 teaches. Uh, we have in our possession ample fossils and re other remains of distinct animals, giraffes and elephants and dogs and people, but there are no fossils of any transitional forms between these distinct species. So, so animals did not morph from one form to another. You know, we see in, in on the covers of Time and Newsweek, the, these never materialize. But we see it all the time. Uh, scientists proposing that they had possibly found the missing link between man and beast. But folks, if evolution, if evolution were true, we would in fact be expecting to find in the fossil record millions of missing links between every form and every species, a morphing of forms one to another. Uh, unequivocally, these links do not exist. They're not to be found because the truth is found in the Bible. God created the fish, the birds of the air, the beasts of the earth, instantaneously, each according to its kind. That's how it happened. Um, so when we think of men and women in the ancient civilizations, Babylonia, Persia, even uh, the Egyptians who built the pyramids, Solomon who, uh, who constructed the great temple in Jerusalem, we should realize that since the creation of Adam, ancient people have been just as intelligent as people are today. Probably more You know, Jesus concedes in verse 54 that the, the Israelites, they were intellectually smart people. They were smart people. Without any instruments or any radar, they had learned to predict the weather. When clouds formed to the west, blowing in from the Mediterranean, they knew it was about to rain. Uh, when the blue, uh, wind blew from the deserts of the south, they predicted it was going to be hot on that day, and Jesus acknowledges that their forecast generally turned out right, and so it is so. Um, so they could observe, they could understand, they could even predict conditions in the physical realm. In the physical realm. Things scientifically observable, measurable, and repeatable. That's what science demands. Observable, measurable, and repeatable. But in assessing the spiritual realm, just as Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 1 teaches, they were spiritually blind and dead. Dead as a doornail, folks. Um, scripture employs that term dead to describe the unsaved and the unconverted condition of man, not on life support, not with a weak pulse, dead dead. Uh, both Ephesians chapter 2 and Colossians chapter 2 employ, employ the Greek term necros. That, that, that's where we get our medical term necrosis that is used to describe 
black dead tissue as in a corpse. Dead. Completely dead. So the people Jesus is addressing, they're physically living. They, they can even predict the weather, folks. They're spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins. Just dead. Many of them, such as the Pharisees, scribes, others, you know, they tried to appear religious. Some even, you know, fond respect towards Jesus. Pretended. But for the majority of them, it was just an act. So he addresses those in his audience as hypocrites in verse 56, saying, you hypocrites, you know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not analyze this present time? Now using uh, the image of a courtroom, consider the image of a courtroom. This is Jesus' indictment number one. Indictment number one, you don't know how to analyze the present time. They were smart, but they didn't understand the times which, in, which within they were living. If you refer back to our scripture reading in 1 Chronicles, that's chapter 12, the sons of Issachar, they were men who understood the times. That suggests they were mindful. They used their heads in an era in which they were living. Let's take a moment just to recap that quickly. God had torn the kingdom from Saul. I said that earlier. While David, who had been anointed king sometime earlier by the prophet Samuel, he'd been living in exile over in Hebron, patiently awaiting his ascension to his rightful throne as a Davidic king to rule over his people in righteousness. Uh, and what we see in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, 23 are those who prove faithful to the king. There were warriors. They represented every tribe in Israel. Uh, they were coming to King David. They were offering their allegiance to him. There we read. Now these are the numbers of the divisions equipped for war who came to David at Hebron to turn the kingdom of Saul to him. According to the word of the Lord. Notice the word of the Lord is their authority. Don't let this slip by. Scripture assures us that they had responded in obedience to God's prophetic word. That word which had identified that David is king. And among these warriors, we find the tribe of Issachar. That was in verse 32. Listen closely as I read from there. Of the sons of Issachar, men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do, their chiefs, they numbered 200, and all their kinsmen were at their command. Notice three important things. These were men of mindfulness. They understood the times in which they lived. They had knowledge. They had leadership. Scripture tells us they had 200 chiefs. What was the result? All their kinsmen were at their command. Issachar is the only tribe described in that group as having vowed complete loyalty to David. Good leadership there. Why such loyalty? Because the leadership understood the age in which they were living. And they persuaded every member of their clan to obey the word of God and to swear allegiance to the king. You know, what a magnificent image of being urged to recognize Christ as king. 
urging people to come to Christ as Savior. David is what we sometimes refer to in the Old Testament, a type or a pattern of Christ that is seen in the Old Testament scripture. This simply means that, that David's life displayed many of the characteristics that we see fulfilled in Christ. We can see Jesus in David's story. There are other types or patterns in scripture of Christ in the Old Testament, including even Jonah. We studied him a couple of years ago. You remember he was a prophet. He originated from just outside of Nazareth, a prophet from Galilee. He was swallowed in the belly of the deep for three days and then was resurrected again on the third day to life. And then he preached to make salvation available to the Gentiles. You know, although we never want to abuse typology, uh, meaning we don't want to just allegorize stuff and, and make it up. The New Testament does, in fact, indicate that Christ is visible across the Old Testament. Uh, Christ himself uses David and Jonah as illustrations of his own life. He employs them. He even rebukes the Pharisees by saying, you search the scriptures. That would have been the Old Testament scriptures at that time. The New Testament wasn't written yet. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. They were unwilling. They're unwilling. So through those scriptures necessary to convert a person to salvation, we know scripture alone will not convert without the quickening of the Holy Spirit. Scripture alone won't do it. Israel had enough evidence. They had the Scripture. They had the Son of God walking there before them as it was sung to us earlier by the Wilers, fully man and fully God walking before them. They had the evidence. They're religious chiefs. They should have recognized that Jesus was the Christ. They should have. They should have, just like the sons of Issachar, sworn allegiance to the rightful king and made the path straight for the Lord. They even had John the Baptist declaring who Christ was. They should have made the way to his throne clear, his paths straight. But they were unwilling, unwilling to come to Jesus because they were spiritually dead. They were dead. Folks, before we become too hard, too critical on Jesus' audience, Let's first consider a couple things. Just as it is written, we are all shut up in sin. All. We're all shut up in sin. That's Galatians 3, verse 22. There is none righteous. There's not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Not even one. That's Romans 3, beginning in verse 10. All that are born into this world are spiritually stillborn. Spiritually necros. All. Well, you will say to me then, why does God still find fault? Who resists his will? Quoting from Romans 9. On the contrary, Scripture says, Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? 
The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? No. Romans 9, verse 19. All spiritual pride needs to be checked at the door. The doctrine, as it was mentioned to you earlier when the Weilers were singing, I heard they talked about the doctrine of total depravity, uh, which is enshrined in our church constitution. And it confirms that what Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will, Jesus promises, raise him up on the last day. That is John 6, verse 44. So the call of the Father is always an effectual call. Jesus says, I will. It's an effectual call. Sometimes that's referred to as irresistible grace. Uh, in John 6, verse 37, Jesus says once again, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. So the answer to Jesus' rhetorical question is, in verse 56, you know, you know why do you not analyze the present time? Me meaning, why don't you recognize the king is here? Why, why don't you see this is the advent of the Messiah? It's predicted in the scriptures. It's seen in the Old Testament. Why, why, why? Because they won't, they're unwilling, and they can't. They're spiritually dead. Um, folks, they're totally depraved. Totally depraved, uh, spiritually dead. It, it should not confound us. really should not confound us at all why our neighbors don't easily come to Christ. Why, why they don't recognize Jesus as king as we have pledged our allegiance. The better question to ask, the appropriate question to ask, is why did we? Why did we? There are not many noble. There are not many rich. Why did, why did we? Well, you know, our answers could be, well, I'm a pretty intelligent person. You know, and I, I, just, I just finally rationalized over time all the stories in the Bible about Jesus. I just rationalized. They must be true. Pride. Or how about this one? You know, I study the Bible a lot. I figured it out. The Pharisees studied the Bible a lot, probably a lot more than many here. Pride. Or this one, you know, my family, we've always been spiritual. We've always been good people, always been Christians. We've always gone to church. Grandpa was a deacon in the church. Our, our families always had it together, uh, a lot more than the families living around on our block. Pride. Just pride. You know, spiritual pride always seeks to find some channel, some conduit, some way to credit salvation back to self. It was me. Concluding the salvation must have arisen from something special about me. Yet the proper biblical understanding of total depravity acknowledges salvation is dispensed by God entirely, fully, completely, without any merit. No merit. Salvation is, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, entirely by grace as a free gift. A free gift. Um, and Romans 9, of course, God's choice. God's choice. So total depravity Total depravity, and we won't talk about it today, but election, God's choice, total depravity and election are, in my opinion, the most humbling of all biblical doctrines. 
it's not about me. You can't take any credit. You can't hang your hat on anything if it was all him. Well, salvation is all about him. And as for the quickening of the Holy Spirit, we see in Acts 16, 14, one, one illustration of that, God's display of sovereign grace opened Lydia's heart to respond. God opened her heart to respond to the message spoken by Paul. What amazing grace. What amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Now I see how great God's grace is. It's amazing grace. And the idea... Really, folks, just a moment here. The idea that God will never interfere with my free will and that my accepting Christ as king originates from my own personal calculations or volition, that's probably as prideful as it could be because it credits me. The doctrine of total depravity correctly asserts from Scripture that a sinner dismisses the cross of Christ as foolishness until the Holy Spirit first convicts and regenerates, making us alive to God. Some of the most glorious words found in the Bible. Colossians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2. He made you alive. That's power. But there remains a common misunderstanding of total depravity, which is essential to understand in the next verse. You know, we say a person is totally depraved. When we say that, we're not suggesting they're always as bad as they could be. We're not suggesting they're, they're just as wretched and wicked as they could be. Uh, what we are suggesting is, apart from God's Holy Spirit, they're bent away from God. They're bent towards sin. They love the darkness better than the light. And apart from God's Spirit, they won't come to Him. Um, we're also not suggesting they don't have a moral compass. Total depravity does not propose there is no such thing as a human conscience. There is a human conscience. God wrote it on us. And total depravity does not suggest that a person is not held culpable for his or her sins. We are culpable for our sins. Uh, what it suggests is, this is what it suggests in summary, despite, despite given a divine given conscience of right and wrong, this is what total depravity proposes and states from Scripture, the unregenerate love the darkness better than the light because their deeds are evil. That's John 3.19. They suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. That's Romans 1.18, which I heard this morning. I think I heard, I heard Romans 1. They continue to willfully sin because their sinful lifestyle seems right to them. That's Proverbs 14.12. They reject the cross as foolishness in the unconverted state. That's First Cross, First uh, Corinthians one eighteen, and their mind is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. For that mind, Romans eight verse seven, is unable to do so. It's unable to do so. And the predictable response of the natural man or the unsaved man, who does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, First Corinthians two fourteen. Nor can he, Scripture says, because things of God are spiritually appraised. They can't do it without the Spirit. They can't see Christ as king unless the Spirit moves. 
Um, generally, what an unsaved person will do is just assert how good humanity is. And people are so good. Oh, there's so many good people out there. Uh, they think that human nature is basically good. That just emphasizes how totally depraved they are. Man isn't good. For the human nature is not good. For the un, In the unregenerate state, the unsaved state, the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's Jeremiah, Jeremiah 17, 9. But man is given a conscience. So in verse 57, Jesus presents indictment number two. This is where the rubber really meets the road, folks. Indictment number two. Jesus asks, And why do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right? They may not possess the spirit to discern that Jesus is, is the Messiah, but they're still moral agents. Jesus asks, why won't you at least distinguish between what is right and what is wrong? Can't you at least do that? That, that Greek term for right in verse 57 means morally right, indicates moral. Uh, why do you not even on your own initiative do what is morally or judge what is morally right? Because you, your conscience knows what's right and wrong. You can be sitting here today unsaved and not believing in Christ. But your conscience knows what is right and wrong deep down. You may have seared it, but it knows. Uh, you suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness probably because you love your sin rather than loving God in that condition. Um, folks, this nation has suppressed the truth of God in unrighteousness. We live in the generation declared by the prophet Isaiah 5, verse 20 says, that generation that says that evil is good and good is evil. Oh, we're there. We're there. Um, to this generation, Isaiah declares, woe to you. Woe to you, America. Uh, are we scientifically advanced enough to predict the weather? Oh, we can put a, a man on the moon. We can harness power from nuclear fission. Are we smart? Are we intelligent with physical stuff that is observable? Measurable, repeatable, oh boy, we're smart. But our nation can't even on its own initiative judge what is morally right. Guilty. Guilty. The scene of the courtroom is guilty. I remember last week we learned, Jesus warns in verse 49, that the fire of judgment is coming. There's a judgment coming. Why? Because people won't even do what is moral. Won't even do what is right. They can't even judge it. Folks, they'll tear down the Ten Commandments. They'll tear them down. If they can't tear them down, they'll cover them up. They'll do whatever they can. They'll get in the courts. They don't want to hear the Ten Commandments. I don't want anybody telling me that I shouldn't be bearing 
false witness against my neighbor. I don't want anybody telling me I shouldn't be adultering with my neighbor or coveting my neighbor's wife. I don't want anybody telling me that I shouldn't murder. What in the world are they afraid of in the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments are good. But man is evil. Man is evil. Um, left unchecked and without a moral voice and a declaration from God's word, a society digresses into greater and graver sin until finally God just says enough. And we've, we've previously learned, it's been repeated now in Luke on a couple of occasions, God doesn't, he clearly doesn't view all sins as equal in offense. There will be differing levels of punishment and hell appropriate to the offenses committed against God. This is all stuff that we've learned in chapter 12 over the last few weeks. Um, hell will be hot. Punishment will be tailored to the offense. That's what scripture tells us when the judgment comes. You know, all, all cultures recognize this principle. It's always mirrored in, in codified law. Dime store theft doesn't carry the same legal penalty as vehicular homicide. Everybody knows that. But America's off the rails. America is completely off the rails. We don't want to hear from God what is right. Instead, we'd, we'd rather look to depraved man to hear what is right. Let's listen to what man has to say. Just recently... As an example, a public figure declared this on national television. It is immoral to tell a woman what she can and cannot do with her body. Well, I guess since they said so, okay, should we just pray and, and go home? I guess, I guess that's the authority. Matter settled. Can society tell a woman from God's word and tell her that God's word declares that prostitution is immoral. It destroys families. It spreads disease. Oh, we can tell them that. Can a nation maintain laws against it? Oh, you bet we can. Prostitution is and always has been a wicked enterprise of great offense to God. You know, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon if you're familiar, uh, in London, over 100 years ago, this was epidemic in London, prostitution. Uh, he called it an epidemic of fallen women. And he said, this, this, this epidemic of fallen women, says Spurgeon. This is so, so on point. This epidemic of fallen women was not, was not about licensing. About licensing them. It's about redemption. It's about redeeming them for the Lord. Spurgeon carried with him an article written about houses that sought the restoration and the reclamation of these girls that he said the city had crushed. Girls society had crushed. And referring to prostitution, he stated, quote, May God avert from England the abiding pestilence of systematic debauchery by which sin is made easy and the path to hell more fascinating than ever. 
Folks, that's some preaching. Can we adopt laws telling consenting adults what they can or cannot do with their body? According to God's law, yes, we can. According to the word of God, we can. Even unbelievers, can we tell them? Yes, we can. Did God's law, answer this, did God's law in Israel apply only to the believing remnant of Israel? Those few during the time of Elijah uh, who, who were believers, a few thousand. Did it only apply to believing Israel or did God's word also apply to unbelieving Israel? Nod your head, yes. God's word applies to unbelieving Israel. Did God's law also apply, even apply to the foreigner who was sojourning through Israel? Answer, yes. The law applied to unbelievers and even for foreigners who were passing through the land. Don't tell me you can't moralize unbelievers. I don't know how many times I've heard that. Well, you know, you can't moralize immorality. You can't moralize unbelievers. They have a conscience. We must either moralize them or they're going to continue to immoralize us. Those are the only two options. Only two options. Christians who know the Bible, which I hope are all here, we must instruct them about what is right and wrong. Not the other way around, folks. And the claim that Christians, you know, they have to check their faith at the door. No, Christians have to check their faith at the door, their morals at the door before entering the halls of Congress. That is bologna. That is absolute bologna. And uh, the, those homosexuals, the feminists, the liberals, they don't check their faith and moral system at the door. It's only Christians that are supposed to check their faith at the door. It doesn't make any sense. Let's quit, quit getting hoodwinked by all this stuff. Uh, many of them have a civil law degree. But when it comes to respecting a woman's body, even they by their own initiative can't judge what is moral. They have a degree in law, still can't judge what is moral. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Must be totally depraved. So unfortunately, we have to remind them what is moral and what is right. Folks, the child in the womb, and I'll state why I go back to this again. Not only just the legislation and what has happened recently, but uh, there's good reason to keep going back to this topic. The child in the womb is formed in the image of God. Abortion at any stage of pregnancy, any stage of pregnancy, is murder. It is murder. Uh, that's, that's what you're going to hear in God's courtroom on that day. Abortion is, it's evil, folks. Let's just face it, it's evil, and everybody's conscience knows it. Everybody knows it. You don't have to watch any videos of it or have it described, though those are available, to know how evil that is. I mean evil with a capital E. There's no room for that. There's no room for that. Um, sinful Americans, they, they don't want to be told. They don't want to be told they should be married. They don't want to commit themselves as one flesh until death do they part. They'd rather prostitute, fornicate, commit adultery. So, so they figure we need unlimited access, access, unrestricted access. That's the argument. 
because they want to break God's laws. Abortion is just the most heinous act in America. It is, and it needs to be outlawed permanently. That's a fact. It needs to be outlawed permanently. Can we do that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we can do that. You have enough people who've been converted to Christ to elect responsible delegates. You can do that. It doesn't happen overnight, but we didn't get where we are today overnight either. It took decades. It took a long, long time to get where we are. It won't change overnight. And in modern society, the death scenario of medically choosing a mother's life against the child's, it's statistically non-existent. It's non-existent. That argument is just, just an excuse to continue to perpetuate the murder of children. That's all it is. It's an excuse. What if they throw some, some very isolated, non-existent scenario um, just to try to continue to do what the totally depraved mind wants to do, murder? You know, we know as Christians, we were just studying this last week in the men's in the men's study on Wednesday, even when Rachel died, giving birth to Benjamin, even when she died, it's very unfortunate, God never lost control. God never lost control. He never loses control. Um, because abortion is so just overtly grotesque, any public figure, it doesn't matter if they are celebrity, it does not matter if they are black or white. It doesn't matter if they are male or female. I don't care what their political affiliation is. If they profess to advance abortion, I know immediately they follow no moral compass as to what is right and what is wrong. They, they can't form any, they can't be trusted to form any other moral judgment. They might be what the what the world views as successful. They might be a billionaire, but they can't even judge what is right. Jesus says, why can't you at least on your own initiative judge what is moral? Virtually the identical is true regarding homosexuality. Praise God for the United Methodist Church this past week, which persevered through strong opposition in strengthening their formal position against homosexuality. I am no United Methodist by, by any long stretch. But the basis of their decision was that they could not violate the word of God or conscience. Praise God, just as Gerald said. There must be some life there in that denomination remaining. Um, the vote wasn't a landslide. But this is their positional doc declaration, quote, the practice of homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. That is right. Therefore, they say self-avowed practicing homosexuals are not to be certified as candidates, ordained as ministers, or appointed to serve in the United Methodist Church. They continue, therefore, ceremonies that celebrate homosexual unions, I'm glad they didn't say marriages because there is no such thing before God is a homosexual marriage. But they said, uh, ceremonies that celebrate homosexual unions shall not be conducted by our ministers and shall not be conducted in our churches. Unquote. That's strong. Good for them. Good for them. 
uh, in the factory means that any sexual union outside of a married husband and wife, it's fornication. It's fornication. It needs to be disavowed as sin. Now, folks, God is a little old-fashioned. He really is. He really is a little old-fashioned. Um, why do these, here's the answer to the question, why do these various sinful expressions, especially these couple, um, homosexuality and transgenderism, uh, abortion, why do they keep getting thrust into our conversation? It's because the people advancing those agendas force it. It sure isn't us wanting to have to deal with this. They keep demanding that Christians sanction their behavior and they thrust it into our face day after day. Then they wonder why we won't get over it. There ain't going to be any getting over it. Um, they refuse on their own initiative to judge what is right. So we, the church, must tell them what is right. It's appalling to hear a person suggest, just, this is just how crazy this country's gotten. If it were not, we're talking, me and Russell the other day about things being dismal. I said, ah, things aren't dismal. God's power, his might, his spirit, it, it can redeem even the, the worst of sinners. Uh, but we're talking about how bad it's gotten. And it is appalling to hear a person suggest that it is wrong to allow our child to dress up and play Indian because of cultural appropriation. Yet that same wretched soul, that same wretched soul will typically declare that it's perfectly acceptable, even admirable, for a man to dress up like a woman. Is that nuts? Is that nuts? Total depravity. Total depravity. Um, country's just completely lost its mind. Praise God there's some life in this country still. And so we must strive to employ our minds. Uh, which brings us to a needed clarification before we close. Um, as to why people... Even, even professing Christians, I'll, use, I'll put that in quotes, professing Christians, because we never really know, can't see people's hearts, that's a good thing. But we need, there needs to be clarification as to why people cannot, on their own initiative, judge what is morally right. It's because their source of authority does not rest in the scriptures. That's why. That's not their source of authority. Uh, everything I've shared today about creation, Six-day creation, total depravity, the Holy Spirit's sovereign ministry to convict and regenerate, our positions on abortion and marriage and homosexuality and transgenderism, they're all cemented in our Constitution, each with multiple clear references to Scripture, to the Word of God. That's the authority. As pastors, I know Pastor Weiler and myself, we're more than happy to field any questions based on Scripture. Based on Scripture. As Martin Luther said, unless I'm, he said this in German. I'm going to give it to you in English because I don't speak German. Martin Luther said, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures and clear reason, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot 
and will not recant. He says, I can do no other. Another giant in the faith from hundreds of years ago. But the problem with many professing Christians today, I think 80-some percent of Americans would identify themselves as Christian. Loosely. So you would think we would have a majority. Bad accounting on that. But the, the problem with professing Christians today is they're not forming moral judgments according to what Scripture says. That, that's the problem. They, they aren't even forming them according, according to what their conscience says. Instead, they're forming positions based on what Oprah says. They're forming their opinions based on what Sharon Osborne says. No undue misrespect. But Sharon Osborne, she, she's married to a man that calls himself the Prince of Darkness. Come on. When are we going to wake up? We don't base our decisions on what the late night comedian says or according to what our own political affiliation says. These sources don't represent Christ. Since when do we pledge allegiance to any of them? When we've got a king who is coming back to ascend to his throne. Why would we pledge allegiance to any of those over the Bible? Doesn't make any sense. We've got to use our minds. We've got to use our minds. We've got to think. We don't think. True Christians formulate their moral judgments from what is clear in the Bible. This is why we're Bible church. Uh, when a person someplace suggests, that hadn't happened here. When a person someplace suggests, I've heard it elsewhere, you know, I don't really care what my pastor preaches, even from the Bible. Uh, you know, I form my opinions according to the view. Oh, I dare say that person needs to get right with God. Mm. And turn off the view. Who would get their moral judgments from such a place? Tune out the pundits. Open your Bibles, folks. The time is drawing near. Open your Bibles so that when that person declares that gay marriage equals equality, you can by your own initiative judge what is right. Judge what is right. It's not that hard for the spirit indwelt person. Is there a path of recovery for America? There is. There is. Um, Jesus supplies it in verses 58 and 59. And he suggests, he suggests we're, we better square things up before we meet the judge. It's a, it's a bit of an enigmatic parable by Jesus. But the, the first word is for. It's a conjunction. It's a logical explanatory junction. What that means is it ties in to the previous verses, tries directly to verses 56 and 57. You can't separate it out and interpret it correctly. In verse 58, 4, while you are going, while you are going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate, on your way there make an effort to settle with him so that he may not drag you before the judge and the judge turn you over to the officer and the officer throw you in prison. I say to you, you will not get out of there until you have paid the very last cent. That which is clear in Scripture 
And in this parable is every person will appear before the judge. It's Hebrews 9.27. It's allotted or it's appointed for man to die once and then judgment. I think the opponent, there's a diverse of ideas about the opponent or the accuser in this parable. Some think it's God. Some think that God serves as accuser and as judge in this, possibly. Um, it may be conscience. Conscience may be the accuser he's referring to. Uh, many violate it. In fact, in America, the conscience has been violated so many times that, that we ought to be hauled into prison. Really, we ought to be hauled in the courtroom, convicted. I think the opponents or, or the accuser is truth. I think it's truth. Um, it's your duty to get reconciled to reality, to truth. Come to reality. Not moral relativism, but moral truth before the final judgment. And there are two indictments in the passage. Who is Christ? Who is he? Analyze the times. It's number one. And, and what is moral truth? The, the two can't be separated. A Christ who does not call us to morality is not a Christ. It's a false idol. The passage is calling people to their senses, advising us to find a way to settle this. Let's settle this before we reach the judge and it's too late. Uh, like the sons of Issachar, analyze your present time. It's, it's the year 2019. And just as the word is declared, Christ has been anointed king and he's preparing for his imminent return to ascend to his rightful Davidic throne. There he will rule with a rod of righteousness. So who is Christ? That's number one. What does your conscience insist is morally right? That's number two. Got to come to grips with those two. Have you figured these out? Have you figured these out? They're inextricably linked. God's son, the sinless savior of the world, he was crucified on a cross to pay the penalty for your sins. So that may, by believing in him, you can be made righteous before God. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. For by his wounds, you are healed. True faith in Christ um, translates into moral righteousness. Moral righteousness, not moral relativism. True Christians translate uh, and transform into moral righteousness. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. That's 2 Corinthians 5.17. Do you follow me? Everyone has to come to terms, come to grips with who Christ is and what true morality is. Truth. And then be reconciled before the accuser draws you into court or you will be required to pay the full penalty yourself down to the very last cent. That means the eternal penalty of sin will be completely paid by you. The questions are cognitive. Use your head. It's not emotional about what you feel. Boy, if I don't trust your conscience, I'm not going to trust your emotions. That's a fact.
For those who use their minds and make a correct assessment, as I stopped reading in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, for those of us who remain with the king, there's going to be a coronation, folks. The king is going to take his rightful throne, and there's going to be a big party. And all who have pledged your allegiance to him are going to be there to celebrate. Therefore, Jesus said, Luke 12, verse 35, be dressed in readiness. I think I'm going to go rent a tux. He's coming. He's coming, folks. And you understand what I'm saying? What America needs are some Christians who are actually ready for Christ's return. We're here waiting for him. So as to serve as the moral compass for society. This society needs a moral compass. We need to return to doctrinally sound preaching in our pulpits across America uh, to counter to counter the assaults by immoral celebrities, politicians, and false teachers who pollute the airwaves and our brainwaves. That's what they do. False doctrine. And it's time to tune them out. Ask Christ to prepare his church to be courageous, become the voice of morality for our country. If he finds it in his will, if he so finds it acceptable in his abundant mercy, the Holy Spirit can initiate a revival across this entire country and further, if God so chooses. That's why we pray to him, because he can. He can do something about it. Even if he doesn't, at least let his beautiful bride, let Christ's beautiful bride, at least let her be ready for him when the bridegroom comes. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we do not gloat, for our sin is much. Each of us, Lord, uh, has more than ours, our share to be accountable. Yet, Father, for those who believe you've accounted the righteousness of Christ, the sinful, uh, sinless perfection of Christ, you've accounted it to us, that we might be redeemed and restored to perfect fellowship with you. Lord, this flesh is, flesh is strong. Lord, it invites us to sin. Uh, if it does that for believers, imagine what it does to this culture. As the flesh is strong and it binds us, Lord, to serve itself. We pray that your Holy Spirit would move in a mighty way, that your abundant mercy would flow out through the preaching of your word and by the power of your spirit. As you told Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And we invite you, Heavenly Father, to change this country. Lord, that, uh, that your spirit would convict us of our sins as individuals and all of us together, Lord, for we are a country who have sinned. And Lord, we pray that we'll be found faithful, that we'll put off the old flesh, that we will, Lord, that we will live for righteousness, we'll die to sin, and that our evenings, our days, our spare time 
as much as we can, Lord, will be spent in your word so that we will know your will. And by our own initiative, we will finally judge what is right. Bless this country, Lord. We love it very much, very deeply. We ask that you would do so in the name of Christ. Amen. Would you stand, please, as we sing a song that says, We walk with the Lord in the light of his word. It's trust and obey. If you know it, sing it. I'm not sure what is on the screen right now. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still. And with all who will trust and obey, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and been a good day in the house of the Lord this morning. If you need to pick up your report, please do that. Also, there will be a love offering at the doors as you leave. All right. Have a wonderful day.